1 John chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 14. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write, I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful passage and we pray that you would take this passage and illuminate it and cause us to understand and cause us to be nourished and edified by your word this morning. Thank you for your desire toward us. If we, could, if we could understand how many thoughts you have toward us, Lord, we would be amazed. Your thoughts toward us are more than the sand on the sea. And we just thank you that, for your love. And we just pray that we would, be, we would just bask in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, in our society, between the younger and the older people, there are often many advantages and disadvantages, right? Depending on your age, there are various exclusive benefits. Can you think of any? Depending on your age, there are very, various exclusive benefits. That's true. true. Mm -hmm. That is true. But... But not just the things we have naturally, but in our society, there's special benefits, things like that, yes, in our society. How many of you remember uh, the days before you could drive a car and wanting to drive and, ho and can't, waiting till you're 16 so you can get your license and then you can get that car and drive, right? And you remember then you could finally drive? That was an exciting time. Remember, remember that, turning 16? Casey? <laughs> um, how many of you remember turning 18? A whole slew of privileges comes with turning 18, right? Now you can vote. Now you can marry without your parents' permission. Now you can buy things without your parents' permission, like property and rent places. Now you can join the military without your parents. Well, I think that's the cutoff age of the military, right? <clears throat> All sorts of things when you're 18, right? So society is set up in this way that when you get to certain ages, there's certain exclusive benefits that you have. Before you're that age, you don't have it. What about kids? Kids will, do, do they get gypped? Do, do kids have any exclusive benefits in society? Free food and restaurants, right? Kids eat free. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kids eat free. You can't go to a restaurant and you can't say, I'd like to eat free. They'll say, you're not a kid, right? That's an exclusive benefit that only kids can have. Or what about the, uh, the playground and the rides? You have to be under a certain height to get in those things. How many of you remember the first time you were too big to go on those rides and in those playgrounds? You walk up to that little sign, and there's a little guy there. You have to be this, under this height to get in. And you're like, come on. <laughs> too big. So kids have their advantages too, right? And seniors have their advantages as well. Senior discounts, it was already mentioned, right? I went to a, a, a website. What's that? Senior parking. Senior parking, yeah. That's right. I went to this website looking for benefits of senior citizens. And it was just funny because it was like, oh, people don't like getting old, you know, because... I mean, you get, you, you get wrinkly, you get old, you can't do the things that you used to do, your bones hurt, you can't remember things anymore, but cheer up, like, you have, like, discounts at restaurants and stuff, <laughs> and free parking, and, I mean, 
Well, this morning in this passage, we have three categories of ages that we're looking at. And the sum of this passage, the sum or the force of this passage in summary is this. That while there may be distinctives in the walks between younger and older Christians, there might be distinctives, and those are natural distinctives for natural and obvious reasons. There is no distinction between them when it comes to having joyful assurance. There's no distinction. And we're going to open that up this morning. So let's point, point out a few things here in this passage. It has been pointed out that this is a poetic little passage, that John pauses, and he pauses to write explicitly who he is writing to and why, which makes this extremely important to understanding the letter of 1 John. But it's been pointed out that it's a poetic passage. It has a ring of poetry to it. And why do people write poetry? Why do people write things in a poetic way? Because you could write the same thing in a non-poetic way. Right. It's a way of saying something so that it sticks in your heart. Right? That's why we do poetry. That's why we do songs. It's a way of saying the same thing that you could say without it, but so that it, it hits you in the heart and you remember it. John wants this to hit us home, and he wants us to remember this. Now, who is he writing to? He tells us explicitly in this passage who this letter is written to and why. It's amazing how people miss this. This is one of the most important passages in 1 John. He writes to three groups. He identifies them as little children, fathers, and young men. And he does it in that order. You you would think he would do it in the order little children, young men, and fathers, but he writes it in that order. Little children, fathers, and young men. And he does it for a reason, which we'll mention in a moment. And he repeats it twice. You notice that he repeats himself twice? He says, little children, I write to you because... And then later he says it again. Little children, I write to you because... And he says it twice, and we can gain insights because he writes it twice. And there's a little bit of variation. And we can compare them and get some insights. Do you notice how in the beginning it says, I write unto you, little children. I write unto you, fathers. And then below it says, I have written unto you. Do you notice that difference there? The difference is also there in the Greek. Some people have thought that perhaps in the beginning he's saying, I write this particular letter to you. And then in the end, I have written in the past the Gospel of John or another letter to you. I don't believe that's what he's saying at all. And that's uh, what commentators Greek commentators agree that he's not saying that. This is what Vincent says, Marvin Vincent, the famous Greek New Testament scholar. He says, the errorist is a epistolatory errorist by which the writer places himself at the reader's standpoint regarding, as regarding the writing as past. So he puts himself at first in his own position. He says, I write this unto you. But then he puts himself into their position when they receive the letter. I have written unto you. So it's just a poetic flourish. The big question here that people wrestle with is, are these ages literal or are they analogous? Right? You ever wondered that when you read this passage? Is he referring to actual literal little children and fathers and young men? Or is he referring to like spiritual young men, spiritual little children and spiritual fathers? And the history of interpretation of this text Uh, you find commentators all down the line disagreeing. So the very earliest commentators in this passage, some said it was literal and some said it was spiritual. But I think that it's not an important question at all because it's both. I believe John is speaking literally about little children, young people, and fathers. And yet, because he's speaking literally, naturally it goes to show that little children typically are spiritually younger in the faith, and younger people are growing and maturing, and fathers are supposed to be spiritually mature. So it really doesn't matter. It's not an important question. If someone becomes a Christian later in their life, they would probably fall into the category of little children. But I still believe he's talking about literal ages when he says this. The point is, is John's writing to everybody. I'm writing this letter 
the, the letter of 1 John and everything in it to little children, to the fathers, and to the young men, regardless of your age or stage. And he also tells us why he's writing this letter, which is very important. It's shockingly clear that he's not writing this letter because he's doubtful of the Christians. Did you notice that? This is one of the most important passages in 1 John because it so explicitly tells us why John's writing the letter. And he, as I pointed out in our first message in this series, there's about 10 different verses in 1 John where he tells us explicitly why he's writing or why he's not writing. And this is one of them, and it's a concentrated passage. It's quite the contrary, actually. He's not doubtful of them at all. He's writing to them because their sins are forgiven, they know the Father, they've overcome the wicked one. That's why he's writing unto them. So there's no doubtfulness at all. If you reverse the order, you can maybe see it even more clearly. So in our Bibles, it says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, but reverse the order. Because your sins are forgiven, I write unto you. Because you know the Father, I write unto you. Because you have known him that is from the beginning, I write unto you. Because you've overcome the wicked one and you're strong, I write unto you. Isn't that amazing? When we write letters to each other, if we ever do, do we, do we usually write a letter when someone's failing and we try to give them a shot in the arm or a boost? How many of you have ever written a letter not because the person was in trouble? You're doing so well, therefore I write unto you. Jacob, I just see you're thriving. I'm going to write you a letter encourage you. See, it seems like John is just, he's living on another plane. A lot of our Christianity is kind of defeatist Christianity in a sense. We're all trying to hold the fort down and when you see people falling out of ranks, we write letters and we try to come around somebody and pray for them, you know. Why not come around them and pray for them when they're doing well? Right. John expresses great confidence all throughout this letter in his people. That's why it's so shocking and amazing that for many Christians and for many commentators, they take the letter of 1 John as John writing because he's doubtful of the Christians. He's trying to root out false believers because he, he suspects that there's false believers there. That's what you hear all the time. But this passage should, should silence that idea forever. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and you get the flavor of 1 John. You get the flavor of a lot of the apostolic writings. Not all, because you have the book of Galatians, right? You have a book where Paul sees a problem and he writes a letter. But many of the letters of the apostles have this flavor. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. This is an amazing thing. Peter writes, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Isn't that amazing? That's just something that you don't find much anymore. But that's apostolic Christianity right there. So back to 1 John. Let's see what he says about these three groups. Let's see, because there are distinctives among them. No doubt, there's real distinctives. The first group he writes to is little children. He says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, I'm assuming that little children doesn't mean infants. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's always a great debate in the church. There has always been a great debate about the forgiveness of the infant's sins and do infants go to heaven, Right? Do little babies go to heaven? But I believe John is not addressing that in any way. He's talking to little children or young children, children that are old enough to have believed in Jesus so, so to have had the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, they have to be able to even read this letter, right? Or have it read to them and understood. It's interesting that the forgiveness of sins is the first and central thing to Christianity. This is why we become Christians, isn't it? How many of you became a Christian, but it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins? 
if, if that's true, you might want to reevaluate your Christianity. <laughs> we come to Christ because we believe the message that we're sinners and that we need forgiveness and that we have a broken relationship with God that needs reconciliation and that through Christ we can have that because he died for our sins, right? Because he died for us and rose again, now we can be right with God and we come to him for that. Little children need to come to him for that. Everyone needs to come to him for that. That's the first stage in the Christian life. No matter who you are. Horatius Bonar, he says this, that Christianity starts with forgiveness. It doesn't end with forgiveness. You might think that's a no-brainer. Did you know how many Christians think that it ends with forgiveness? You know, you join the Christian church so that you can come under these covenants, have all these rules. If you follow them, then you'll be forgiven at the end of your life or something like that. Then you'll be forgiven if you do everything that you're supposed to do. There's many people who profess to be Christians and they're working to attain the forgiveness of sins. That's their Christianity. That's what their Christianity consists in. But as Bonar rightly points out, Christianity is not finished with forgiveness. It starts with it. Forgiveness isn't the goal. It's the beginning. It's the gift. In order to have a relationship with God, you have to first have the forgiveness of sins. What kind of a relationship would, it, would you have with God if you weren't forgiven? If Brad and I, if we were trying to have a relationship, but every time I sinned, he did not forgive me. And I've sinned a lot, so he hasn't forgiven me of anything. What kind of relationship do I have with Brad? Yeah, nothing. He doesn't forgive me. How many of you know what it's like to not forgive another person? Is that a good relationship? No. In fact, that's not really a relationship. That's an acquaintance. You know, A relationship is one that consists in love, and love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love forgives. If you're harboring unforgiveness against somebody, then you don't really have a relationship. In fact, what you need is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoring of a relationship, right? Yeah, you, you had one maybe, but it was broken. But where there isn't love, where there isn't forgiveness, there isn't love. And where there isn't love, there isn't a real relationship. So anyone who thinks that they have a relationship with God, and yet they're seeking to be forgiven by God, actually has no relationship with God. And Christianity, it starts with forgiveness when you come to Christ, and you live the rest of your life in relationship with God. You have a relationship with God if you're a Christian. Do you realize that? That God doesn't hold any sins against you anymore? Even the ones you're going to commit tomorrow. Because you've trusted in Christ, and because he's died for your sins, therefore, when you sin, he has forgiven you. And you, you live in relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful? John writes two things to the little children. I write unto you, little children, because your sins, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And for his name's sake means the reason why you were forgiven of your sins. How many of you know why you're forgiven? Was it for your sake? Was it because of you, on account of you, that we were forgiven? That's the sense of the Greek. You're forgiven for his, on his account because of his name, which is mercy and grace and just and compassionate and good. Because of Christ, you're forgiven. Because of the character of God and what he's done for you, you're forgiven. And because of this, he says the second thing. Look at verse 14, or the end of verse 13. He says this to the children. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. Isn't that wonderful? So there's two things about these little children. Number one, and these are little kids, like Caden and Jonathan. <laughs> if they believe on Christ, doesn't matter what stage they're in, doesn't matter that they're not mature as you, they're forgiven because of the name for God's namesake. And they know the Father. They know the Father. They know the Father 
through having experienced the forgiveness of their sins. You realize that? It's when we are forgiven, when we experience forgiveness, when we are forgiven through Christ, it's by that experience that we come to know the Father. If you think that you have to work to be forgiven, you don't even know who God is. You don't understand God's character. But the moment you realize that, wow, even though I'm a sinner, he would forgive me right now as a gift because he sent his son to die for me, boom, you know the Father. You know who he is. You understand his heart, his name, his character just by accepting the message of forgiveness. And so even a little child who believes actually knows God. Isn't that an amazing thing? They know God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells us that one of the very first things we do when we become a Christian is we begin to call God our Abba. That's a very intimate word for God or for Father. Abba. The first thing. We start to relate to him that way because we believe the message about God that he loves us and that he sent his son to die for us. We say, then how can we not just, when we, when we refer to God, how can we not speak toward him with that tenderness of affection? You're talking to the God who loves you even though you were a sinner. You're talking to the God who even though you've sinned against him countless times over and over and will sin against him, he had provided already the propitiation for your sins. How can you not refer to him in an affectionate way? Abba, thank you. I know that you love me because of what you've done for me. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says this, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator... In the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's, now, remember, Father touches the essence of the gospel. There's, there's a lot of, I think, phony father talk in Christianity as well. But when we refer to God as our father and you are his child, we're talking about the gospel. We're not talking about some human notion of that, that even non-Christians sometimes talk about. Right? Non-Christians say, God is my father and I'm his child. We don't, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the revelation of the heart of God in the death of his son for us. That controls, as Packer says, and prompts our worship and our prayers. So the next time you pray and you call God your father, Load that with meaning. Load that with understanding the heart of God. Don't just say, God, you're my father because I'm created by you and you're everybody's father because we're all created by you. It's not like that. It's like prodigal son, you know? It's like, wow, the gospel reveals to me that you're like a father to me that even when I had run away from home and wasted all your stuff and I don't even deserve to be yours anymore, you would get off the bench and run down the road when I come home and hug me and put a ring on my finger and a robe on my, around me and shoes on my feet. That's what the kind of God you are. You're a loving father. I think that whenever we think of God Whenever we contemplate that, it can't but prompt worship in us. If we don't feel worshipful, it's just because we're not remembering what we believe, right? Because we believe something so amazing if we believe it. So this is children, brothers and sisters, little children on the earliest stages of Christianity. They have the forgiveness of sins and they know the Father. That's amazing. That is so amazing. That becomes even more amazing when we look at fathers. So the second group, verse 13, 
I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. That sounds a lot like what the children know. Maturity is characterized, according to John, by the same thing. You know him. And you say, well, you think, well, how is that maturity then? If the child knows the father, then how is it maturity that the father... Okay, you know, is there a, what's the second thing he says? Oh, it's the same thing. The second time he refers to the father, he says the exact same thing verbatim. I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I think he repeats it without changing it, just because there's nothing he, there's nothing he could add. There's nothing he could change. The mature Christian knows that's what maturity is. I think the difference is this, that the father has learned by long experience with the father that the, that the thing at the beginning is the main thing. You know? The father learns that the first thing is the main thing. And what, the, and what the beginner knows, what the little child knows, is the most profound thing, is the most important thing. The child knows the father, but perhaps the child doesn't realize what an amazing thing he knows or she knows. Right? How many of you, when you became a Christian, you knew you were forgiven and you started to call God your father, but you didn't really know how amazing that was? <laughs> you know? You're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you start looking for other things, right? <laughs> yeah, I know God's my father. Isn't that just what everybody knows? Yeah, I know I'm forgiven. Isn't that normal? And you start looking for other things. And your Christianity, you begin to chase other things. All sorts of things. The Christian church is full of things you can chase. But fathers, those who have come to a place of maturity in their Christian walk, they realize, you know what? It was that first thing. The thing I knew from the beginning that really is the main thing. He's a father. God is a father who loves us, who would run down the road for us, who sent his son to die for us. A.R. Fawcett, Irish commentator, writes, it's a beautiful, it's a, it is beautiful to see how the fathers are characterized as reverting back so the first great truths of spiritual childhood and the sum and ripest fruit of advanced experience is the knowledge of him that was from the beginning. Isn't that amazing? So the more wise and advanced in knowledge you get, the more you realize that it was what the child knows. That's the most important. I believe that John is alluding to a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Very famous one. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a very famous prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the new covenant that is to come, that was to come at that time, that Jesus ratified in his blood when Jesus said, This is the blood of the new covenant that is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. There's a very important, very important part of the new covenant that I think we miss as Christians. Extremely important. I think that Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus make a bigger deal about this than Christians do. Okay? Because the Jewish people look at this and they read it and they take every word seriously. And we have something that we can tell a Jewish person. We, can, we have something we can show to the world here. And if you notice in verse 34 of chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, 34, he says this very important thing. And maybe you've never understood this, but I believe that John, being so thoroughly Jewish and Hebrew-minded, was thinking of this and is even alluding to this in this passage in 1 John. It says this, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for, because, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. You see that? 
That's part of the new covenant that God was going to make, that God has made with his people. They will all know me. You don't need to say know the Lord to someone who's in. Because no matter if they're the least little children or the greatest fathers, they all know me because I've forgiven their sins. We know him through the forgiveness of sins. We know him through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. So we know the Father. We know who God is because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And the amazing thing is it's from the least to the greatest. You don't need to become an advanced Christian. You don't need to become a mature Christian. You don't need to get advanced in stages to know who God is. Maybe to appreciate it, yes. But to know God, the least even knows him. The least of those who have been forgiven. If you've been forgiven of your sins through Christ, you know who God is. Maybe you didn't appreciate that or understand you did. And so I believe John is alluding to this when he says little children and fathers and he puts them in contrast with each other. He's saying, as Christians, the Christian church, made up of all these different ages and stages, is a fulfillment of the new covenant that God promised. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing thing for God to say, that they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. It just kind of goes against our our natural thinking, because we think that in religion there's all these advanced stages, and you, if you really want to know God, you've got to get to the 300th degree, you know. <laughs> Christianity is not saying that. Christianity says, and, and the Bible, get, don't get me wrong, the Bible says that the knowledge of God is the most important thing of all. That's the, Jesus said this is eternal life, to know God. Jeremiah also says, don't boast in anything but that you know God. And then he says, even the least to the greatest know God. Amazing. What about this one last group? You think, oh, that's all great. That's wonderful. What about the young men? The poor old young men who struggle. <laughs> one more group. The strange and unusual in between. Right? See, children tr are trusting. Little children are trusting. Fathers are settled. Young men wrestle. <laughs> right? When, when a person becomes a Christian for the first time, they're full of the, the wonder of, of forgiveness of sins and knowing God, and they're just trusting that. When a person becomes a father and a mature, they come to a settled conviction of that. But in between, you have this difficult period of wrestling with the devil. The devil comes after young Christians eventually. But, brothers and sisters, it's through this wrestling with the devil that you come to be a father. You know? <laughs> Do you go from that just simple childlike trust in God, which is beautiful, and then the devil comes and challenges that. And the devil comes and challenges whether you're forgiven or not. And the devil comes and challenges whether you really know who God is or not. And you wrestle with him until finally you come out the victor on the other side. It's the getting from a child to a father that now John has in view here. And he's full of encouragement, isn't he? He's so full of encouragement. He's confident. Young men. If you're truly his, you may be in a struggle with the adversary, but let me tell you in advance, you have overcome the evil one already. It's an echo of Jesus' words, it seems. In John 16, 13, he says, you're going to have lots of trouble in this world, but don't be, a, don't be uh, alarmed. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, and you will too if you're mine. To overcome means to conquer. It means to conquer. Overcome doesn't just mean like uh, in Indiana Jones, when uh, the very first episode in Indiana Jones, when, when he grabs that thing off the, off the pedestal and then the, the big ball starts rolling at him. Do you remember that? 
and he's running and jumping over things and ducking under things, and finally he gets out on the other side, right? You could say he overcame that obstacle. But it's stronger in the Greek. It's not just that you've sort of made it through with your, with your, with your, uh, your head on your shoulders. It means you have subdued and conquered the evil one. That's the word overcome. You've subdued him and conquered him like a lion that you've put to death or that you've put down and tied and bound. And what is it to overcome exactly? Because if I just say you overcome the evil one, well, whoosh, there's a whole bunch of things that could mean, right? What does that mean exactly? When have you overcome? And what does it mean to overcome? And John tells us a little later in John, if you turn over to chapter 5 of John. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, tells us explicitly what he means. And he says in verse 4, this very encouraging thing. This is why he has such encouragement for young men. And brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're struggling as a young man or in that stage, this is very encouraging to hear. In verse 4 it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Look, if you're born of God, Matt, you're going to overcome period. That's going to happen. Isn't that awesome? Whatever's born of God, you don't become born of God by overcoming. You overcome because you're born of him. By virtue of that, you overcome. And this is the victory that subdues and conquers the world, our faith. What does it mean to overcome? Does it mean that you stop sinning? You know, people talk about that. You've got to overcome the evil one. It means you stop sinning and you live a perfectly sinless life. I don't think fathers even have attained to that. But it's faith. It's faith. Because, brothers and sisters, the warfare that the devil brings our way, when the devil fights us and when the wicked one wants to subdue you, we are totally naive if we think that the main tactic of the devil is to get us to sin. Right? Totally naive. First of all, we sin fine without the devil. True? Let me suggest that the devil's main objective is to take your eyes off of the truth of the gospel and to put your eyes upon yourself so that he either makes you think that you are right with God because of your own works or not right with God because of your own works. That's his tactic. He takes your eyes off of the gospel. What's it all about? The gospel is all about grace. It's all about the law being fulfilled because of Christ, not because of us. What we could not do, he did for us so we could be justified freely. But the devil comes and says, no, no, no. I mean, he doesn't outright deny Jesus. He doesn't outright deny Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead, absolutely. He's your Savior. You want to go to heaven? It's got to be through him. However, it's time for you to look to yourself. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Because if you're not, you're not right with God. Oh, you just sinned. Oh, now you're condemned. Oh, you did a good deed. You're right with God, right? How many of you have ever done a good deed and you felt tempted to think that, man, I'm really going to heaven? <laughs> God, is, God thinks I'm the best. Or you do a bad deed and you're immediately tempted to despair, right? This is the struggles of young men. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. And who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's packed. That statement is packed. Your faith in Christ, your faith in who, who Christ is and what he's done because he reveals who God is. Your faith in Christ overcomes the world and it's your faith that Satan is trying to take away from you. 
If you look at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, it all has to do with faith and the gospel. All of it. So don't be naive. Don't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. His desire is to draw you away from grace and into religion. Right? The devil wins when you, when you take your eyes off grace and you start following zealously after the law. He wins because he knows you're damned. <laughs> he knows that the law is only going to condemn you. If he sets you off trying to be right with God by your works, he wins. But he can't get you if you look to grace because even when you sin, you say, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? He can't even get you with sin. You sin and he says, you're condemned and you just simply respond with him. Who is he that can condemn me? It's Christ that died and he rather is risen. He can't get you. You've overcome when you can say that every time you sin. No one, can, no one can lay a charge against me. No one can condemn me. And then Satan has no weapon that he can form against you at that point. Amen? So think about these things and let them sink in. Ponder them. He also says about the young men in the second part. So the first part he says, he gives them encouragement. Young men, you've overcome the wicked one. I think that's proleptic. I think he's, he's saying that even though it hasn't actually happened yet. It's so certain if they're born of God that he says it. And then in verse 14, he says, he gives a little insight into that. He says, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, first of all, we know that the, our strength is not our own. The Bible says over and over that our enemy is stronger than we are. But the strength that we have is the strength that we have through, through Christ. Amen? In, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And what is the word of God? The word of God abides in you. Does that mean the Bible? Does that mean the scriptures? Some would think so. Young men, you have overcome because the scriptures abide in you. I don't think that's what it's saying. Don't be shocked, though. I don't believe that John is saying the scriptures here. Because what about those who don't have the scriptures and they don't know the scriptures very well? Right? Sometimes we take, we take for granted that we have Bibles and can read it. Right? But in many parts of our world, even now and in, in the past, there's been young men who have struggled with the devil and have overcome because the word of God abides in them. And they didn't necessarily know the Bible as well as you do. As you do. Now, I don't, now, I believe that knowing the Bible can be, can be a part of having the word of God in you. In fact, if you do know the Bible, it means that the word of God probably does abide in you very strongly. Very, it abides in you, surely. But I believe that when John says the word of God, he's referring to something specific. It's another expression particular to John. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We'll look at three verses in Revelation. <clears throat> and I believe we'll see that the word of God, when John says the word of God abides in you, he means something specific. Something specific abides in you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Revelation, excuse me, yes. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribula tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the Isle of Patmos, that is, that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe there's a Hebrew parallelism here. The testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God are one. Let's see this again. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. So John is exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. They exiled him because of that. I don't think that's because of the uh, book of Joshua. Now, it says in Revelation chapter 6, 
Verse 9, 6, 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. See that again? They're slain for the word of God and the testimony. Notice the conflict between Satan is the one who's hostile to this word and this testimony. He sends John to exile and he has people slain for this word and this testimony which they held. And the last verse, go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. One more Hebrew parallel is in Hebrews or Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness, or the testimony, same word, of Jesus, and for the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So now they were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. What is the testimony of Jesus? Hmm? We believe the testimony of Jesus. We, we believe the testimony of Jesus, and we get ourselves into a lot of trouble for believing that. We believe the testimony of Jesus and we ourselves testify what we believe. We ourselves proclaim it and for that reason we get ourselves into trouble. We get ourselves exiled and beheaded. And we get ourselves into conflict with the devil for the testimony of Jesus. And what is it? Certainly that's the record. Righteousness by faith. The gospel. The record of Jesus, who he is. He's the Son of God. He reveals who the Father is, what he did. He died for our sins so that we could be saved by grace. He reveals who the Father is through that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and and by seeing that he's given his Son, we know that God loves the world. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus are one. The Word of God is the message of Christ. It's the message from God that John in 1 John says, that which we've heard and seen, we declare unto you. We declare a message unto you. It's a message that we've seen and heard. It's a message concerning Jesus that we've believed and now proclaimed to you. And when you believe it, now you have the record in and of yourself and you proclaim it too. It's the message of Christ that reveals God as Father. So brothers and sisters, it's the, it's the same thing that the children and the fathers have. If the word of God abides in the young men, that is the same as saying that they know the Father, that they know God. And so don't, John is saying the exact same thing here. From the least to the greatest, they know me, and it's because you know God that you overcome the wicked one. Do you see that? It's because you know him. You've believed. You've understood who God is and what he's done for you and what that means for you, that you overcome when the wicked one comes at you to tell you that God isn't really who you think he is, right? So children trust, young men wrestle, and fathers are settled in this the knowledge of God. And so John writes to all of them. Now in closing, I'd like to just point out something very important. And this is so often missed when this passage is looked at. Most sermons would end right there. So you talk about the different classes and what their distinctives are. But he says, I write unto you Children, I write unto you, fathers, I write unto you, young men. And the question I simply want to ask is, what does he write unto them? And what is First John all about? Joyful assurance. From the beginning to the end, he's telling the little children and the fathers 
and the young men, because they know God, you can have joyful assurance. Joyful assurance is for the little children. Joyful assurance is for the fathers. Joyful assurance is for the young men. For all ages and stages of Christians, John Stott points this out by saying, John is laying emphasis on the assured standing into which every Christian has come, whatever his stage or spiritual development. This is an explicit reason why he wrote this letter. Because you are... You know the Father, I'm writing joyful assurance to you, no matter if you're young, old, or in the middle. All may have joyful assurance. And what this reveals to us is how simple it is to have joyful assurance. It reveals the simple message of 1 John. If little kids can have it, 1 John's simple. If fathers can have it, 1 John's simple. And if struggling young men can have it, 1 John is simple. Because he says, this message of joyful assurance that I'm writing, it's for you all. It's so simple, brothers and sisters. So while there are distinctives in our walk, there is no distinction when it comes to who may have joyful assurance. There's no height limit, you know? Only if you're under this height can you have joyful assurance. There's no age limit. You don't have to be 18. There's no worthiness limit. There's no maturity limit. There's no limit if you're struggling. There's no limit if you're too young and your faith is simple. You don't have to come to a settled, mature faith to have it. We may all have joyful assurance because it is simple. It is simply through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because Christ died for you, Terry, and you believe in him, you are saved and you have assurance. Because the Father loves you and you know that. Every one of them believes and all know the Father and so we can have it. So let me just say, this is the exclusive benefit of Christians. Amen? Not of a certain kind of Christian. This is not the exclusive benefit of certain kinds of Christians, but the exclusive benefit of Christians and Christians only, whoever you may be. So if you have believed, then have it and let your joy be full. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself as our Father, as the Father that would run down the road even to an unworthy person as me, Lord, and that you would sacrifice for me and make me justified freely and accept me and make me your child, and that you do this for all. Thank you for revealing this, for revealing who you are. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. Help us to remember this and let it be the stimulus for all of our worship and all of our prayer and all of our life. God, thank you for the assurance that we have, knowing that even though we're sinners and unworthy, you died for us and that we have eternal life. May we have that assurance and rejoice in it every day. And may we encourage one another, the struggling and the ones who are doing well, with this message of joyful assurance. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and for your glory, Lord. Amen.